Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, March 29th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. A fire at a migrant center in Mexico kills 39. Police say Monday's Nashville school shooting was planned. The Taliban arrests a prominent girls' education activist. Taiwan's former president Ma begins a landmark visit to China. Sam Bankman-Fried is charged with bribing a Chinese official. Kyiv is attacked as British and German tanks arrive in Ukraine. The U.S. Senate votes to advance a repeal of the Iraq War Authorization. Biden bans the government use of commercial spyware. New polls show Trump leads DeSantis as the GOP presidential nominee. And a study claims China has spent $240 billion bailing out Belt and Road countries. A fire at the Juarez Migrant Center kills dozens. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Fox News, The Guardian, and Washington Post. According to Mexico's National Migration Institute, or INM, at least 39 people died on Monday after a fire broke out at a migrant processing center in Juarez, Mexico, located near the Stanton-Lerdo Bridge across from El Paso, Texas. Images from the scene where the INM say 68 men from Central and South America were staying show bodies underneath sheets as well as ambulances, firefighters, and vans from the morgue. Twenty-nine people were reportedly taken to the hospital with critical injuries. The Mexican press has reported that many of the victims came from Venezuela, where millions of people have left due to economic instability. Immigration officials reportedly spent hours before the fire rounding up Venezuelans begging in the streets. Though there has been no official statement regarding how the fire started, Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador said migrants anticipating deportation were protesting in the center just before it was set ablaze. Mexico's attorney general's office has opened an inquiry into the matter. Ciudad Juarez, the Mexican city located just across the Rio Grande from El Paso, has seen an influx of migrants in recent weeks as they await the end of the U.S. Title 42 pandemic-era migrant expulsion policy. The fire comes several months after a riot inside an immigration center in Tijuana involving Venezuelan migrants that had to be controlled by police and National Guard troops in October. Dozens of others rioted at a center in Tapachula near the border with Guatemala in November. All right, those were our facts. Let's begin our narrative spins today with the left narrative from Washington Post. Though they finalized a migration deal in December, the soon-ending Title 42 policy has still left America's southern neighbor overwhelmed by migrants headed through Mexico to the U.S. Facing pressure from both the Biden administration and his own citizens to tighten immigration policies, Lopez Obrador still can't get a handle on the situation. The once pro-immigrant politician is in a tight spot and calls from North American conservatives to take harsher measures aren't helping. And here's the right narrative from Fair U.S. In contrast to the Trump administration, which actually deterred illegal immigrants from even trying to reach the U.S., Biden's migration agreement with Mexico has done very little to mitigate the border crisis. 
These migrants obviously know that a few deportations here and there won't stop them from reaching America once Title 42 is over. So incidents like this, which is just one symptom of the border crisis, will only continue until lawmakers finally show, through concrete legislation, that people can't simply walk through Mexico into the U.S. The Nashville school shooting leaves six dead. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Fox 8 Cleveland, CNN, The New York Times, Politico, and The Daily Mail. Six people were killed, including three children, in a shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville on Monday morning. The shooter, identified as 28-year-old student Audrey Hale, was armed with a rifle, a pistol, and a handgun and was shot dead by police. Nashville's chief of police said the shooter had planned the massacre, adding Hale had a map drawn of the school, including entry and exit points at the school building. A motive has not yet been disclosed. However, Hale was a student at one point at the school. Investigators also disclosed that a manifesto had also reportedly been discovered. U.S. President Biden called the shooting a family's worst nightmare and ordered the national flag flown at half-staff on all federal buildings through March 31st. Monday's shooting was the deadliest school shooting and the 129th mass shooting of 2023 in the United States. So far this year, 63 children have been shot and killed in the U.S. from gun crime. Now, those are the facts of that sad story. And here are the narrative spins. We'll begin with a left narrative from The New York Times. How many school children and other innocent victims must die before better gun laws are passed? The U.S. has more guns than any other country, essentially one gun for every citizen, and one of the highest gun-related death rates. This madness needs to stop with better regulation, including limiting who has access and the types of weapons they own. And the right narrative comes from the San Diego Union-Tribune. The problem isn't guns, it's the people behind the guns. The current gun regulations that are already in place aren't working. So why keep trying the same solution, hoping for a different outcome? A different, better solution is needed rather than simply banning guns. Mental illness and inadequate security are the roots of mass shooting and must be addressed. But the possibility of a real solution is overlooked by making the political discourse anti-gun. Here's the cynical narrative from NPR. Another day in the United States, another mass shooting. And just like all the previous tragic attacks, nothing will change. The violence will continue. Mass shootings have become a part of America's landscape, and neither side has enough political willpower to change that. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance there will be at least 1.38 small firearms per capita in the USA by the year 2029. In our next story, the Taliban arrests a prominent Afghan girls' education activist in Kabul. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, CBS, Voice of America, The Washington Post, and The Independent. The UN mission in Afghanistan said Tuesday that the well-known advocate for girls' education, Matiula Wesa, was detained a day earlier in Kabul, urging the Taliban-appointed authorities to clarify his whereabouts and the reason for his arrest. The founder of the Pen Path charity was reportedly arrested after coming out of a mosque, and his house was raided, becoming the latest women's education activist to be detained in Afghanistan. 
His brothers were also briefly detained and then released. An anonymous senior Taliban official reportedly confirmed that Wesa was in custody, claiming his arrest was related to his work and meetings with Westerners, likely referring to his gatherings with EU officials in Belgium and UN officials and foreign diplomats in Kabul. The Taliban took over Afghanistan following the withdrawal of the U.S.-led coalition in August of 2021. Since then, it has closed secondary schools for teenage girls and barred women from attending university. Wesa has repeatedly urged the Taliban to reverse its bans, demanding girls have the right to go to school and learn. During the past 18 months, Penn Path has carried out a door-to-door campaign to fight illiteracy and promote girls' education. His nonprofit group travels across the country with a mobile school and library. In 2018, he was awarded the Mir Bacha Khan Medal, one of Afghanistan's highest national civilian honors, by then-President Ashraf Ghani for his campaign work. All right, thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a Republican narrative from The Spectator. The current attacks on girls' and women's rights in Afghanistan are a direct result of the Biden administration's disastrous decision to withdraw from the country. His administration may pontificate about women's rights, but it has no way of enforcing them without troops on the ground. Here's the Democratic narrative from Vox. While U.S. involvement in Afghanistan saw significant gains for women's rights, the fact that Afghan security forces collapsed so quickly following its withdrawal indicates that the yields weren't sustainable without an indefinite U.S. presence, which itself wasn't sustainable or realistic. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 25% chance that the U.S. will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before 2030. Taiwan's former President Ma begins his China visit. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by DW, Al Jazeera, Reuters, the South China Morning Post, Nikkei Asia, and the Associated Press. Taiwan's former President Ma Ying-jeou on Monday kicked off a 12-day private trip to several cities in China amid strained relations between the self-ruled island and Beijing. Accompanied by a delegation of Taiwanese students, Ma said his trip was aimed at easing cross-strait tensions and promoting peace. Ma emphasized the importance of fostering people-to-people exchanges and also stated he would honor his ancestors. As the first former or sitting Taiwanese president to travel to the PRC since the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949, Ma stressed that people on both sides of the Taiwan Strait are ethnic Chinese sharing the same heritage. Ma, whose tenure from 2008 to 2016 saw improving relations with the PRC, will remain in mainland China until April 7th and reportedly will visit neither Beijing nor meet Chinese President Xi Jinping. The China visit by the senior member of Taiwan's opposition Kuomintang Party coincides with a trip slated for this week by his successor and current president Tsai Ing-wen to the U.S. and remaining allies in Central America. Tsai became president after the pro-independence Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, won the 2016 national elections, prompting Beijing to sever ties with the Taiwanese government, citing Tsai's objection to Beijing's one-China policy. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll begin this round of spins with the pro-China narrative from the Global Times. While Tsai and her successionist DPP are in collusion with anti-PRC forces and have brought Taiwan to the brink of war, Ma's visit reflects the policies of his presidency and sends an important signal of detente. 
Taipei needs to understand that the U.S. promoted path of confrontation to maintain its crumbling hegemonic status in the Indo-Pacific is a dead end for the Chinese people. Only dialogue and appreciation of shared cultural roots will ultimately lead to cross-strait peace. And the anti-China narrative comes from Newsweek. Ma's trip plays into the hands of the PRC regime, which has been working to reclaim Taiwan since the Chinese Civil War. Taiwan plays a key role in Beijing's hegemonic ambitions as a springboard for dominating the Asia-Pacific region and challenging the U.S. At least since Tsai Ing-wen became president, Beijing has been gearing up for a war against Taiwan. Washington and the world community must not let Ma's naive trip blind them to the need to prepare for the worst. And there's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 58% chance that the Democratic Progressive Party will win the 2024 Taiwanese presidential election. And the trouble never ends for Sam Bankman-Fried, who's allegedly bribed a Chinese official. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, TechCrunch, New York Post, and Forbes. Already facing several federal indictments, founder and former CEO of cryptocurrency exchange FTX and hedge fund Alameda Research, Sam Bankman-Fried has been charged with successfully bribing one PRC government official with a $40 million payment in 2021. Federal prosecutors say that in or about 2021, the purpose of the bribe was to influence and induce one or more Chinese officials to unfreeze certain Alameda trading accounts containing over $1 billion in cryptocurrency. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, the bribe was successful as Bankman Freed and his cohort gained access to the accounts. For that, he faces a charge of conspiracy to violate the anti-bribery provision of the Foreign Corruption Practices Act. The former billionaire CEO now faces his 13th criminal charge for illicit business practices following the collapse of his crypto empire, up from the eight charges he faced upon his December arrest. News of the indictment came one day after the U.S. government took action against Binance founder Chengpeng Zhao. Zhao and several other corporate crypto leaders are being sued by the U.S. Commodity Futures and Trading Commission. Bankman Freed, whose other charges include allegedly defrauding investors and customers of his two companies and co-mingling funds between the two entities, faces life in prison if convicted and receives the maximum sentence. All right, thanks for that rundown, Melissa. Narrative A comes from Daily Mail. The ever-expanding Sam Bankman-Fried saga represents the ugliness of America's corporate government. The man who seemingly bought off American politicians has now been found to have potentially bought influence within the PRC government. Though he's currently sitting comfortably in his parents' Palo Alto, California home on a $250 million bond, maybe these corrupt leaders will actually punish their former friend. And Narrative B comes from The New Yorker. According to the U.S. government's account, Bankman-Fried's corruption was baked into FTX's processes from the very start of its operation. Whether he was dishonest, deluded, or both, the government needs to conduct the most thorough investigation and prosecution of this fallen crypto tycoon. You usually have to pay 25, uh, 10% of your bond in cash up front. So do they have $25 oh, wow. million dollars hanging around? Or uh, I'm going to guess yes. 
Yeah. If yeah, his parents live in Palo Alto. Right. I think they're, they're elbow deep in, in Kishash. Kiev is attacked as British and German tanks arrive in Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukranska Pravda, Ukraine Forum, Independent, and TASS. A drone attack was launched on the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv early on Tuesday. However, the country's air force said its pilots and missile defenses destroyed all 13 of Russia's Shahed drones, intercepting them before they could reach their intended targets. A further two drones were reported shot down in the Dnipropetrovsk region. However, one drone was able to evade air defenses and reportedly struck the premises of a private business, causing a fire that reports suggested spread over 4,000 square meters. In further Russian attacks, the border region of Sumy was extensively shelled with artillery and other weaponry, injuring one civilian. The Kherson region also continued to be targeted. No civilian injuries were recorded, but the premises of a hospital were reportedly severely damaged. Heavy fighting also continued in the Donetsk city of Bakhmut, where Russia has continued to make marginal gains. Oleksandr Sersky, commander of Ukraine's ground forces, stated, our main task is to deplete the enemy's superior forces and inflict heavy losses on them. This will make it possible to create the necessary conditions to facilitate Ukrainian land's liberation and bring our victory closer. Meanwhile, British and German deliveries of battle tanks have arrived in Ukraine this week. On Monday, German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius said his country had delivered 18 Leopard 2 tanks, four more than initially promised. Germany is additionally finalizing negotiations to deliver the older Leopard 1 tank, officials said. On Tuesday, Ukraine's defense minister Oleski Reznikov confirmed the arrival of British-supplied Challenger 2 tanks in the nation after the UK promised to deliver 14 of the vehicles to Ukraine. Ukrainian tank crews also returned home on Monday after receiving several weeks of training on Challenger 2 tanks at a UK military base. Elsewhere, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Russia was regretful after a U.N. Security Council resolution on launching an independent inquiry into who perpetrated the Nord Stream pipeline blasts failed to garner enough votes at a meeting of the council on Monday. Only Russia, China and Brazil voted for, while all remaining 12 participants abstained. And we'll start this round of spins with an anti-Russia narrative from Business Insider. Western tanks, even many of the older models, have a great track record of defeating the Soviet-era armored vehicles that Russia keeps sending into battle. The delivery of British and German tanks, along with the arrival of U.S. Abrams tanks set to take place soon, could provide Kyiv with a formidable and invaluable asset in the ongoing fight against invading Russian forces. And TASS brings us the pro-Russian narrative. The delivery of Western-made tanks to Ukraine risks backfiring against the country's allies. Russian forces in the Donetsk People's Republic are currently waiting for the vehicles to appear on the battlefield so that they can capture and study them, thereby improving Russia's ability to fight the tanks more effectively in the future. This move will give Russia's military great insight into the technology being used by NATO and go a long way to aiding Moscow's military intelligence. And there's a nerd narrative saying there's a 9% chance that there will be more than four deaths between Russia and NATO forces outside of Ukraine before July 1st, 2023. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. 
<laughs> jokes on you because those great tanks you're using, well, we're going to get them and study them. And then we'll have the same technology as you. Right. <laughs> then we'll move into the 1990s. That's that's yeah. the plan. Yeah. yeah. Hey, the 90s were pretty great. So maybe they're on to something. I'll watch some Fraser and drink some Surge. I'm fine with that. The U.S. Senate votes to advance the repeal of the Iraq War Authorization. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, Middle East Eye, the Associated Press, and Fox News. In a 65-28 to 28 vote, the U.S. Senate decided Monday to advance legislation to repeal two decades-old authorizations for past wars in Iraq as the U.S. government considers its posture toward the legislative process for sending troops into combat. The first authorized the 1991 Gulf War, and the second, passed in 2002, authorized the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. The final vote to repeal the authorizations is expected later this week. Though the U.S. Constitution states that Congress, not the president, has the right to declare war, the authorizations allowed presidents to legally justify military actions without congressional approval. The White House has also signaled that it will support the repeals, saying that such a decision would have no impact on current U.S. military operations and calling the previous authorizations outdated. While there seems to be congressional and executive approval regarding Iraq, the Senate voted last week to continue congressional authorizations for the use of military force in the global fight against terror, which has been in place since 2001 in the context of the invasion of Afghanistan. In more recent years, former President Donald Trump cited the 2002 authorization to justify the 2020 airstrike that killed prominent Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in Baghdad. All right, responsible statecraft brings us the democratic narrative. The president shouldn't have a blank check when it comes to going to war. There have been many lessons from the Iraq war that have still gone unheeded. And if the authorizations are not repealed, the U.S. is destined to make the same mistakes it made in the past. The American people must have a say in decisions that have such a crucial impact on their lives, bank accounts, and the country as a whole. The Republican narrative comes from the New York Post. Though it seems that almost everyone now understands that U.S. policy toward Iraq was a mistake, Republicans should make sure to include legislation that will lead to an investigation of the current administration's failures abroad, namely the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. It should also include oversight regarding billions of dollars worth of military aid going to Ukraine. While we're at it, why don't we take back a couple other things in U.S. history? They call it in uh, in fiction or stories, they call it retconning as like they change something in the story and then say this has always been the case before. Like it's it's always been the case that this has happened. Um, oh. And maybe it'd be nice if we could retcon American history. Yeah, there's a couple things that that uh, I don't think many people would have a problem with. Yeah. Retconning. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. Retroactive continuity. Yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah. Biden bans the government's use of commercial spyware. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, The Hill, Washington Times, and the White House. U.S. President Biden on Monday signed an executive order banning federal agencies and departments from using commercial spyware that could pose national security risks or be misused to violate human rights globally. 
The order bans spyware that could be used by foreign governments or people to gain access to U.S. government devices, uses data obtained without government authorization, intends to disclose non-public information about the government, or is controlled by a foreign government. Spyware is secretly installed on a person's device to monitor their internet usage, keystrokes, and other activities, and it can be sent to a government or other entity without the person's knowledge. Senior administration officials declined to specify which spyware will be deemed a security risk. The order says it complements existing laws and rules, including congressional restrictions and reporting requirements for the intelligence community and the Department of Commerce's entity list to address foreign policy concerns related to surveillance technologies. This comes as the government has identified devices associated with 50 government personnel in at least 10 countries. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins. We'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from USA Today. Coming on the heels of Congress's restrictions on former members of the intelligence community and the U.S. ban on Israel's NSO group, which created the powerful Pegasus spyware that spied on journalists and politicians, this order continues to make protecting the U.S. and its allies from hackers a top priority. It's important to establish guidelines for the currently unregulated use of spyware and sets a strong example for other countries. And the establishment critical narrative comes from BBC. It has been a decade since Edward Snowden revealed that the U.S. intelligence community spied on American citizens. An analysis of that leak found that 90% of the National Security Agency's data was collected on ordinary citizens. But the government still hasn't ended the initiative. Instead, the government has shifted attention away from its Orwellian tactics and made people think foreign actors using commercial spyware are the biggest threat. How do you feel about uh, like companies spying on their their employees to, to so they know like where they're working from home, what they're doing for productivity reasons? I think it's gross. If you're not human enough to have conversations with your employees about your expectations, then I don't think you should be running a company. I also think a lot of it falls like, do you trust the people you're hiring? Like there I'm sure there are people who aren't doing a good job working from home, just as they wouldn't be doing a good job working in the office, but don't hire them or fire them or do something. Like, right. what's going I, on? I, there are plenty of indications without having to spy on them to to know if they're not doing a good job. Yeah. It's, it feels uh, like a huge burden also to have to spy on them, weirdly enough. Like, those resources could be put somewhere else. Right. Like, oh, why don't we pay our people, pay better people more money to work for us instead of having to spy for them? In national polls, Trump leads DeSantis by double digits. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, The Guardian, The New York Post, The Hill, The Washington Examiner, and The Daily Caller. Former President Donald Trump leads Florida Governor Ron DeSantis by 14 points in the latest National Reuters Ipsos poll related to the 2024 presidential election. Trump announced plans to run more than four months ago, while DeSantis has not officially announced his intentions. Moreover, the recent Harris poll from the Center for American Political Studies at Harvard on Monday showed Trump holding an even wider lead of 26 points. However, recent surveys conducted by public opinion strategies showed DeSantis ahead of Trump in Iowa and tied with the former president in New Hampshire. Mark Penn, co-director of the Harvard Caps Harris Poll, said despite Trump's current large lead, it will be difficult to assess DeSantis's strength until he announces his run. 
DeSantis is currently on a book tour in key campaign states. It has been widely speculated he'll announce his run after the Florida state legislature finishes its session in May. In the Caps-Harris poll, former Vice President Mike Pence, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, and Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina all poll at less than 10 percent. The pro-Trump narrative comes from the conservative treehouse. These polls show why DeSantis will be making the biggest political mistake of his career by challenging Trump, who leads DeSantis in all the major categories, even the ones the mainstream media said wouldn't be attracted to the former president. Trump is the present and the future of the Republican Party, despite how much the establishment hates him. Here's the Republican narrative from Fox News. If DeSantis wins Iowa and contends tightly in New Hampshire, there would be a momentum shift that would permit voters to move away from Trump, who hasn't changed since his 2020 defeat to President Biden. DeSantis is strong in those states, so Trump shouldn't count on an easy race. The entire GOP would likely enjoy a hard-fought close race between these two. And the Democratic narrative comes from Daily Kos. It looks like Republicans are stuck with Trump. Despite his 2020 election loss and his inspiring the violence of January 6, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol, DeSantis was supposed to be the heir apparent, but instead he can't break through Trump's hold on the grassroots of the party. This is 2016 all over again. Despite the success DeSantis has had in pushing Orbanist-like policies in Florida, the Democrats will still likely face Trump's GOP come 2024. Here's a narrative D from CNN. Alarmingly, the real winner of the Republican primary looks to be Vladimir Putin. Both Trump and DeSantis have made it clear that if they become president, Ukraine's support from the U.S. would be in danger. This domestic debate could have global consequences. And if the war is still going on in 2024, Ukraine's fate could effectively be decided on the ballot next year. And the river card on this narrative royal flush is the nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that prediction markets will say Ron DeSantis is the most likely Republican nominee for president on January 1st, 2024. So we both have delusions of, of minor fame. Uh, Ron DeSantis was just on a book tour. What would you want, like for real, in your book tour little green room like what when you walk in there you're going to be out there for a few hours signing stuff this your back room what do you want in your little green room for you what's oh, on your rider nice um chocolate covered gummy bears chocolate covered gummy bears okay what else yeah are you making a list for me uh, maybe i'm gonna remember this yeah yeah <laughs> the- Our final story, a study claims that China spent $240 billion bailing out Belt and Road countries. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, Financial Times, CNN, The Guardian, and DW. An international study published Tuesday claims that China spent $240 billion bailing out 22 developing countries between 2008 and 2021, with the figure rising in recent years as they have struggled to repay loans spent building so-called Belt and Road Infrastructure. The paper written by researchers from the World Bank, Aid Data at William & Mary, Harvard Kennedy School, and the Keele Institute for the World Economy shows that almost half of these bailout loans, or $104 billion, were granted between 2019 and the end of 2021. Despite not exceeding the amount of bailouts provided by either the U.S. or the International Monetary Fund, Beijing has become a key lender for developing countries, especially those involved in its Belt and Road Initiative infrastructure mega project. 
Researchers also found that China rescue lending with an average interest rate of 5% or three points higher than a typical IMF rescue loan is mostly directed at developing nations that have high debt levels to China, allegedly in an effort to rescue its own banks. According to the report, Argentina has received the most rescue loans from China, adding up to nearly $112 billion. It was followed by Pakistan and Egypt with $48.5 billion and $15.6 billion, respectively. The Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson, Mao Ning, responded to the report on Tuesday saying that China had never used its loans as political leverage. He also said that China never attached political strings to its loans. Those are the facts on the final story. Thank you, Scott. And here are the narrative spins, starting with an anti-China narrative from The Washington Post. The PRC has been using developing nations as pawns in its bid for influence against the U.S., exploiting poor countries under the guise of helping them. Currently, the world's largest government creditor to such nations, Beijing, now accounts for nearly half of these loans, which often come at high interest rates. As the bill is coming due, China once again reveals its greed and the predatory nature of its so-called financial cooperation. And the pro-China narrative comes from Liberation News. The West has been spreading ill-founded narratives about China's alleged debt-trap diplomacy for years, a myth that has three blatant problems. China doesn't unilaterally dictate the BRI projects to other countries. Its development financing is largely recipient-driven through bilateral interactions and deals, and it has never seized an asset because a country defaulted on a loan. The real debt trap has been carried out by the IMF and World Bank. You ever have to resort to like a payday loan or some kind of cash advance situation? You ever been that that desperate? Thank God, no. I mean, I have been desperate enough to play the lottery. Um, <laughs> yep. But thank goodness I've had uh, enough people around me to stop me <laughs> from yeah. getting that bad. Yeah. And did and I take you didn't win the lottery? I won four dollars. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.